A few years ago, there was a national news report about a British couple. As they flew into the United States, they were detained and interrogated for possibly being terrorists. terrorists. And uh, their detainment uh, uh, was an interrogation for a few hours, and then they were under armed guard uh, in customs for 12 hours at the airport. And this young British couple was perplexed by why they were being detained and possibly being labeled as terrorists. And Homeland Security, uh, in their questioning, pulled up a tweet that one of these people sent before arriving to the United States. And in the tweet, the person wrote this to a friend, free this weekend before I go and destroy America. The young man told the Sun-Times uh, that uh, he tried to explain to Homeland Security that destroy is slaying in Britain as party. At that point, they were in too deep, and Homeland Security sent them back to Great Britain. Well, since 9-11, we can understand the level of security, and I, of course, don't know all the details of this exact story, uh, but it seems like quite an overreaction of the mighty strength of the U.S. government to a young couple just wanting to come to party in the United States. Well, today, we are going to hear about someone else with great power overreacting. And it's going to cost people a lot more than missing out on a vacation. My hope this morning is this passage will get us to think about ways we might overreact and how that might be a detriment to ourselves and others. And also understand where that overreaction comes from. And then ultimately, how we can find peace in situations where we feel out of control. Well, let's look together, shall we? We're in Daniel chapter 2. It's printed in your worship guide if you want to follow along. It's a little bit of a longer passage, so please pay attention as I read God's word this morning. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards in great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation." They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show, you, show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, for you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. 
You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome. We're going through the book of Daniel this fall all the way until the new year. And if you like fun adventures, you have come to the right place. We get fiery furnaces and lion's dens, people thrown into them. You get crazy visions of beasts with horns, lions with wings. It's intense. And it's fun to go through. I love this book. It's been so good to go through it. And I love preaching it. So you get the opportunity to have me really enjoy a book. I enjoy most books of the Bible, don't get me wrong. But this one's a little bit more fun. The first uh, six chapters of the book is in narrative. So, you know, if you've been used to the English classes you've gone to, you know kind of the forms that a narrative takes. A setting, plot, conflict characters, rising action, climax, resolution, all those things. And if you're a good reader, you look at those things when you read a story. And the same elements are here as we read the narrative. The setting, we're in the capital city of the most powerful empire in the world at that time, Babylon. Remember Babylon, the seven ancient um, wonders of the ancient world, the hanging gardens of Babylon. This is an epic empire that Um, scales thousands and thousands of miles. And eight years ago, they defeated the Assyrians, who thought no one thought the Assyrians could be, be defeated, and the Babylonians did. The former Babylonian king died just a couple years ago. His son, who was the general of the armies, now becomes king. His son had traversed through the Middle East, had defeated Damascus and Tyre and Sidon, and also the characters that we are looking at, Jerusalem. And what his son had done is that he had dragged the best and the brightest of these different nations to Babylon. And for Jerusalem, that was 500 miles away. So here are these best and brightest who are going to be inculcated, kind of maybe brainwashed, as the Babylonians would have said, by their culture, so that the cultures that 
Babylonians took over would just basically go away and they would just assimilate into Babylonian culture. And so we are at the vantage point of four of these teenagers from Jerusalem that have been sent in exile into Babylon. And we've seen that they have graduated summa cum laude from Babylonian University. And now they are in the royal court. And this is a different world for them. And there are hints that you see throughout Daniel of the different world that they have been placed in. For example, starting with verse 4, the very language that you usually read the Old Testament in Hebrew has changed to the Babylonian language, Aramaic. Actually, used to be Chaldean until the 19th century. They changed it to Aramaic. But this is the language of that empire. And now for the next four chapters, instead of reading in Hebrew like you would if you were a, a someone from Judah, now you're reading in this foreign language, Aramaic. Even the language is different to show how foreign it is to these people, how outside of their normal context they are. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at one story over the next three weeks, and we're going to take it in three parts. Today we see the rising tension and the conflict. Next week, we'll see the climax of the story. And then week three, the resolution. Again, here is the tension that we're in. These exiles are, again, in a different language, a foreign place. They're foreigners. They're in a different kingdom. How are they going to live in this place, in Babylon? Jeremiah, one of the prophets that was in Judah at the time that, that these people went into exile, said that they should seek the welfare of the city, even though it's not their city. So we see that these teenagers and these exiles both will cooperate for the welfare of Babylon and its empire, but not capitulate, realizing they think there is a king that is above all kings. There is a kingdom that they live by that is different than the Babylonian kingdom. And that question then falls on us as Christians. Peter calls us exiles in the New Testament, that we are aliens in a foreign world, in a foreign land, that we are in this broken place, and still Jesus is the king that is redeeming this broken place. And one day, he will come fully to create a new heavens and a new earth. I was talking to someone recently why they didn't go to church or why they're not a Christian. And they said to me, they said, you know, you Christians, you're no different than anyone else. There's nothing different about you. I kind of pressed him on the issue. I said, well, how do you want us to be different? Do you want us to be revolutionaries? Do you want us to be antagonistic? Do you want me to dress more weird than I am? Kind of talked about this. He's like, I want you to be distinct. Maybe that's weird and that's strange, but the distinctives is that you're caring and loving, and that's different than the culture that is around us. I found that very intriguing. 
Sometimes I feel like I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't. Maybe if I'm too weird, then you don't want to listen to me. Maybe if I'm too capitulating, you don't want to listen to me. So where do you go? And that's the tension that we live in as Christians. What does it look like to live in this world but to be distinct? I'm going to make this argument. Maybe you're exploring Christianity today. Maybe you're thinking about this whole Christian thing and Maybe you're just having some problems with Christianity. You've grown up in the church. I think following Christ in his kingdom is actually the best way to live. It's actually the best for our culture, and it's best for the welfare of the city. And today we're going to see that argument played out. Like I said, in narrative, you see different things. We see conflict and settings and those things like that. One other thing we see in narrative is characters. In the beginning of chapter 2, we are given a stark contrast between two characters. One, this king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and this other character, Daniel, this teenager from Jerusalem. And through the comparison and contrast of these characters, we, I think, are given the principle of this passage. So if you're going to listen to anything I say this morning, maybe you're already tuned out, listen to this. This is what I see this passage trying to show us. Those who live under God's reign demonstrate peace in chaos compared to those who live by their own kingdom. Those who live under God's reign demonstrate peace in chaos compared to those who live by their own kingdom. Well, we've been waiting for this, right? We're waiting for like the lens to come on Nebuchadnezzar. We've heard about how great he is, how amazing his empire is, all that he's done. And now, finally, we're brought into the palace to this character, Nebuchadnezzar. This one that is able to appoint kings over other nations, take tributes, take the best and brightest from other nations, and have them serve him. We're going to find out who he is. His very name comes from the Babylonian god Nebu, which means God of Wisdom. So you're expecting to see these great virtues of this amazing ruler who has great power and control. And this is where it gets pretty ironic. Instead, when we zoom into this character, what do we see? He's dealing with what we all deal with. Sometimes, maybe not all of us, but some of us. Insomnia and anxiety about a dream. Even this great and powerful Nebuchadnezzar struggles with not being able to sleep. So what does he do with this problem of not being able to sleep and having these dreams that are hard? He calls all his advisors, sorcerers, you know, magicians, Chaldeans, all to come and help him with his dream. Well, here's the catch. He wants them to tell them what he dreamt and its interpretation. Now, usually you just tell the magicians what you dreamt and then they would come up with the interpretation. No, he takes this to the next level. I'm not going to tell you what I dreamt. 
Maybe he didn't remember it. Maybe he just didn't want to tell them. I don't know. The passage doesn't really say. But he wants them to tell them what he dreamt. And what happens if they don't? What is he going to do? Well, he is going to tear them limb from limb. Well, that kind of problem kind of ratcheted up quickly (laughs) what he's going to do. And the advisors, you can see, are pretty perplexed by this, and they come back to him again, and they're saying, okay, listen, it doesn't work that way. You've got to tell us the interpret- you've got to tell us what the dream was so we can interpret it. And now Nebuchadnezzar gets really frustrated. He's like, I know your tricks. You say that you're clairvoyant. You say you talk to the gods. If you are able to do that, then you can tell me what my dream was. And I know if I just told you the dream, you might tell me that was something that was corrupt and it was just change over time. If you're really who you say you are, you can tell me what the dream is. And he doubles down on the punishment. He says, my word is firm. This echoes the book of Esther, where we saw the king do that there. Basically what he's saying is, I put it to word that if you do not do this, you will die, and your homes will be destroyed. Now, I don't care who you are reading this story, post-exilic people that are reading maybe Daniel for the first time, maybe in church history through time, maybe now reading it for the first time. You read this and you go, what is this guy's deal? He is unstable. He's the most powerful person in the known world. And now because he has a bad dream, he's going to kill all his advisors? That might seem very foreign to us. Then we remember one of the bosses we might have had in our lives, right? (laughs) Bosses that flipped out over the smallest things in the world. Have you had a boss like that? That have freaked out over something you're like, this is really trivial? Or sadly, a coach? You ever had a yelling coach? Make a bad play, he like loses it? Or even more sad, a parent. That you had to walk on eggshells. Something was out of place. You might have been yelled at or abused. Why is this so perplexing when this happens to us? I think there's something unsettling about someone with great authority and power that you think is supposed to be under control just loses it. And you realize why that happens at times. That people that get enough power, when things start to get out of control for them, They just lose it even more. Because they think, this is not the way it should go for me. I have created my world, and I deem it should go the way I want it to. Surely that doesn't happen to us, right? What do we do when the coffee spills? The car doesn't start. The dishwasher breaks. Your child cries. Do you ever lose it? And sadly, when you lose it, those around you that 
you love the most are also witness and also face the shrapnel of your anger. I think the story of Nebuchadnezzar shows us this. No matter the amount of power you have, your life can still get disrupted. No matter the amount of power you have, there is still a king that is above you. That can still intercede in your dreams, unsettle you, that has control. And that's really what this book of Daniel it is, communicating. There is a king of kings. I heard someone say something uh, just this last week that cut to my soul. A good way to tell where your heart is is how you respond when you get interrupted in your day. A good place to know where your heart is is how you react when you get interrupted. Do I dare say that? (laughs) With my family in the front row? You might say, I'm no Nebuchadnezzar. I don't run my own kingdom. I don't have my own subjects. Here's the thing. That's kind of the American way, isn't it? To get our own freedom and our own power, have our own control, be our own kings. Heated seats. NFL ticket. Amazon Prime delivery in two days. Grubhub. We actually might be more in control than Nebuchadnezzar. Our health, food when we want, mobility, news at our fingertips, boom! I always like to ask the famous Dr. Phil question, right? How is that going for us? Are we less anxious? Are we less angry? Are we more content? Or do we overreact when something doesn't go the way we want? Do we not look to others when our life isn't going perfectly in our order? See, as Christians, we should be living by a different set of rules than trying to gain more personal power and control. And we're going to see with the other characters in this story how they live and what comes from the way that they live by living under a different kingdom. So let's look. The contrast, again, is between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. And it is a stark contrast. Here is a king in his palace, conquered nations, height of his power, at an age that you should be at your peak, losing his fill in the word. And then we have a teenager in exile, in another land, with a different language, not in an inner court. He's not even made aware of what's going on here. 
And you see these characters are on the opposite ends. But then we see how they react. Compare Nebuchadnezzar's conflict to Daniel's conflict. What is Nebuchadnezzar's conflict? He had a bad dream. What is Daniel's conflict? He is going to be torn limb from limb. What is Nebuchadnezzar's reaction to his bad dream? You don't tell me what it is. I'm going to kill all of you. What is Daniel's response to facing his life being taken away from him? And see what it is. Let's look together. Daniel chapter 2. So the decree went out and the wise men, this is verse 13, were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. The Aramaic word is actually wisdom. And I think it's in direct contrast to the very name of Nebuchadnezzar, which again, this is the God of wisdom. You see how Daniel actually responds with true wisdom. He responds in a very tense situation with calmness to understand what is happening, to find a solution. And that is in direct contrast to how Nebuchadnezzar responds. If you've been in the leadership world for the past 10 years and read the books and the research that's out there, there's um, a lot of words used about what makes a good leader in the 21st century. And the major findings or what people are communicating in the leadership world is leaders need to have what they call a non-anxious presence. Okay? This comes from Bowen theory, family systems, popularized by Edwin Friedman in the 20th century. And what they're saying is the skills needed for leaders today, especially in a place where there's so much information, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of change in organizations, a leader needs to be able to deal with all that tension that's around them, the anxiety within a system, work, church, family, with all of that and be able to think clearly, to be wise, to lower the anxiety, to navigate the situation of other people losing their stuff. That is a good leader in our age. Well, 2,500 years before Bowen theory and non-anxious presence, here is Daniel living it out. He is living out a non-anxious presence. And he's showing humility and boldness to this problem. He says, I'm going to go to the king. No fanfare, no, hey, pomp and circumstance. Give me the time and I'll interpret it. It's not if, it's not conditional. Give it to me, I will interpret it. Dude, this is ice water in your veins kind of person, right? 
calm and composed in a crazy situation, a teenager with no power responding in that way. How is that possible? How is that possible? How can you do something like that? Please hear me. Daniel believed he was under a king that would keep his promises even when the chaos was all around him. I'll say it again. Daniel is able to be non-anxious, able to think clearly, able to be wise in chaotic situations because he knows there's a king that is faithful to his promises that he's under. And he trusts in him. Isaiah 26.3 You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. What does Daniel do right after he says he's going to do this? He goes to his friends and says, let's pray. Let's pray that this God of gods, King of kings, will give us mercy. And he will not just save us, but he will also save all the wise men of Babylon. Right? He's, he's living Philippians 4, right? Do not be anxious, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your response to God. Ed Welch, who writes a lot about anxiety, he says this, those who consistently respond to anxiety with prayer are the sages in our midst. And then he talks about his own problems. He says, the last 30 years of my life have been spent shortening the time lag between the appearance of anxiety and the onset of of prayer. Left to myself, I spin out doomsday scenarios, hoping that my frenetic mind will stumble into some answers. But when I go to my Heavenly Father and tell Him my worries, when I remember His words to me, and when I thank Him for His care, the peace of Christ does begin to rule my heart and mind. It's a miracle that still takes me by Surprise. Is that your response? When your coffee spills? When the dishwasher breaks? When your car doesn't start? When your day doesn't go as planned? As your studies pile up? Is prayer where you go? I love my community group, and I, I, I have to give them most of the credit for my sermons because we just talk about the Bible together and they give me some great insights, right? One of my community group members this week, they said, you know what it is about Daniel? He saw his need. And in his need, that's what gave him great peace just to be able to say, God, help me. 
community group member said, maybe that's, maybe that's how all of us should be. You know how countercultural that statement is? Where we say, the way to deal with our anxiety or our struggles or whatever is to gain more power and control. And the more power and control we have, the more peace we have. But it doesn't seem like that solution is working. In fact, those who give up their life to the one who is loving and knows all things will truly find peace because they will come under a kingdom that will never spoil or fade. I hope I'm self-aware enough that as I say these words, I know some of you out there are going, what world do you live in, bro? (laughs) Give up control? There's no wisdom there. I fight and claw for what I can get. I don't know my future. I don't know what my position's going to be. I don't know what job I'm going to have. I don't know what success I'm going to have. I've got to get it. And I'm going to go to the places that are going to help me figure out what my future holds and where I can go. Maybe it's some healing doctor. Maybe it's a podcast. Maybe it's a PhD. Maybe it's more money in my 401k. I'm going to pursue these things that will show me the security of my future and my anxiety will go down. I will be fine. But then as you pursue this, this way of thinking, some, one, some wise person might come next to you like the sages of Babylon and say, no one on earth can meet your demands. No one on earth can meet your demands of you figuring out what your future is going to hold and you find security and peace in all circumstances. No one on earth can meet those demands. And then when you hear someone say that to you, maybe it's a parent that says that to you, a teacher a friend, finally someone says what you need to hear. Maybe you respond like Nebuchadnezzar in verse 12. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious. You know, these magicians and sages and Chaldeans said something very, very wise. Yes, even the world can say things that are wise. Look with me. Verse 11. The thing that the king asks is difficult. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Little did they know 
that 600 years after they made this statement, God would come in the flesh. That wisdom would dwell among us. That God would come in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man, and he would show us how to live as exiles in this world. If anyone had a, a, a right to overreact to a situation, it would be Jesus. Am I right? Persecuted unjustly, sent to death by who? The people that he created and made and knows better than they know themselves? If anyone had a right to be angry and kill all of us, it was him. And what did he do instead? He responded with a non-anxious presence. He listened to us. He answered us. He healed us. He loved us. He cared for us. And when he was under pressure, he went to his father and interceded with him. And unlike Daniel, he did not escape death. Instead, he went to death by our own hands. See, that is a picture that you can willingly trust and give up your control to the one that showed us peace. And then we can live in his strength. And that is the picture of true freedom. Too many of us are living like Nebuchadnezzar. Oh, we look good. I mean, when you're around people, right? I know, right? You're around people at church, all those things. Oh, it's all good. Your kids interrupt you into something in the middle of a game, and no, everyone would be disappointed by how you respond. Some of you think, man, he is really harsh in this book, right? In Daniel. Last week he was harsh. This week he sounds harsh. Just a harsh pastor. Let me tell you something. The reason I'm so harsh is because the gospel is working on my heart. I'm preaching to myself. I don't care if none of you hear it. God's going to work on me. Hopefully sanctify me and change me in this process. And that is the good news of trusting in Jesus. That in fact, losing yourself, giving up control, you actually find yourself and find peace.